Let me ask you to turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be tonight in chapter 2, and despite what your bulletin says, we're going to read a little further in chapter 2, in verse 14. We're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verse 5, through the end of the chapter, uh, verse 18. So let's come and hear God's word from the author of Hebrews and from God's own lips. Let me remind you, as I always do, this is God's word. It has no error. It could not have an error. More than that, positively speaking, it has authority over our lives. It is sufficient for every faith question you have. It is sufficient to build you up in practice of that faith. And above all else, it shows you Christ. Let's see him in these words tonight. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 5. We're told that it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It's been testified somewhere, what's man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, to to man, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the middle of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, look, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angel that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Nothing for reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Let's go to him briefly in prayer to ask him to do that. Father, we come tonight, we come sacrificing things. We come sacrificing our time. We come giving up a portion of our Sundays, so we say. We come giving up time. We could be working or playing or acting according to our own pleasure. Yet we give it up, Father. Not because there's some rule, but because you have given us all things. You've given us all things and you have set aside this day. We might come and rest and see Jesus Christ. We need you to help us do that. We pray for your spirit to be with us now. Help us see Jesus. We pray in his name these things. Amen. So Hebrews chapter one, what's it all about? Jesus is high. 
He's high. He's lofty, that is. He's above the angels. He's the creator of the universe. This chapter, number two, goes in the opposite direction. He's low. His eye is low. Not like a cloud system, right? Instead, the author of Hebrews is saying he is high, but he's not like one of those gods on Mount Olympus. Not like one of the gods we, we play around with today. He's not a Greek god on high. He's not the god you see pictured in the movies with some white beard. He's not up on the clouds. He's a different kind of god. There was a murder in New York City in the 60s that was really bad. Maybe you've heard of it before. There's a 28-year-old gal, Kitty Genovese. She was coming home late, very late. Night shift, she worked. She was in the block in front of her apartment. Right in front of her apartment. Somebody comes out, attacks her, stabs her. She screams out. He stabbed me. Help me. Please help me. Apartments all around. Lights go all, all off. Windows open above. People look down. And the guy who's attacking her, he sees people looking down. He, he runs away. The police later found out that they counted 38 people who looked down. 38 people opened their windows, got out of their beds, turned the lights on, looked down, and saw Kitty Genovese getting stabbed. They looked down. They didn't come down. In fact, out of those 38 people, nobody even called the cops. They didn't want to get that involved. And the assailant, the guy who had attacked her, he had fled a little bit for about five minutes, but he realized the cops aren't coming. Nobody comes down to help her. What does he do? He finds where Kitty had crawled away into the alley. He finds her again. He robs her of $49 and he kills her. Jesus is not like that. According to this book, he hears our screams. He hears our cries. He doesn't just turn the lights on and look down. He doesn't just open the window and say, ah, too bad. He comes down. He makes himself vulnerable. He makes himself so vulnerable. In fact, he ends up coughing his own life. He's not some high God who's up there in the clouds. He's not a king who kind of like commands and people do it. He comes down. And the real trick for many of us is not to know that. I think most of us know, yeah, Jesus kind of becomes human. He comes down. The tr real, real trick for us, I would argue, is that we don't look for him when he comes down. The real issue I think many of us face is that we do not see Jesus Christ. We don't know how to. We don't know where to. We don't know why we really should be. We don't, uh, we don't see him very clearly. Remember the story about Peter? Brave Peter. He sees Christ on the water and he goes towards him. He tries to walk to Christ and the waves are all around, the storms all around. He does okay for a little bit and then he begins to falter. He begins to slip. He begins to sink in the water. Why? Because he's looking away from Jesus. He's not looking at Jesus. It is a fundamental principle in the Christian life that you must keep your eye on Jesus or he'll sink you. Life will sink you. You got to keep your eye on Christ or life will sink you. That's the theme tonight, really. If you want a theme, that's the theme tonight. Make sure the eyes of your faith 
are resolutely fixed on Christ. These Christians in the book of Hebrews were told in chapter 10, they had lost everything. Their savings had gone up in smoke. They'd suffered persecution. We're told they actually lost their church. They lost their temple. They're meeting some dingy hall. They had lost their houses, so much so they were meeting in kind of, you know, we might call a strip mall. They're meeting in some hole. What do they need? Any more money? No. We're told here they need to see Jesus Christ. But here's the issue. We can't look to Christ if we don't know much about him. I think it's one of the great tragedies of the 21st century church that many of us feel very deeply we do not know Jesus well enough to consider him, to think about him, to see him clearly enough. We're told here in verse 9, really the, the core center point of the whole chapter, we see him. But do we? Do we know enough to see him? You know, we know a lot about the secret to baking bread. I'm sure plenty of you all could tell me how to bake bread well. You could tell me how to bake whatever you like well. We know a lot about baseball stats. We know the bulldog starting lineups. We can tell you about the ins and outs of the entrance rates and how they're, the Fed's moving them up or down or whatever and all the effects that may have. We know all the latest political decisions We spend a great deal of time considering those things because we know a lot about them. But I think we find it supremely difficult to see Jesus Christ. So the writer gives us five reasons, five core reasons to see Jesus Christ, five ways, if you will, to see our Savior. I know five is more than we usually do, two or three or four maybe. But if you need it, I think we have pens and, pens and pencils in the back. Get some scratch paper. Use the bulletin. And uh, let's take some notes, shall we? Um, first, we see here five things, right? First thing, beginning in verse 5 to verse 9, we see Christ as the exalted king. We see Christ as the exalted king. The author wants to show us that. And he begins here by taking us all the way back to creation taking us all the way back to the opening chapters. He says, when God made humans, he put us in charge of the whole world. We're called in the first chapter of the Bible to subdue the earth, the rule of the earth. And so he quotes Psalm 8, the author does. Verse 6, what's man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. We have this glorious calling as humans. Everything should be under our feet. We're royalty. Do you know that you're royalty? You're a king and a queen. or a prince and a princess you prefer. But what happened to us? Though we're the dominant species, Adam fell into sin. We fell with him. Our rule over the earth is spoiled. And while we may use the water, the resources of this earth, we use it for our good pleasure, We scoop soil out of the ground. We plant in the ground. We have a great garden out back. We do so, y'all know it, ladies, with toil, with pain, with sweat. It's hot out there. And so though everything is in subjection, the author points out in verse 8, we do not yet see everything in subjection. Though it's supposed to be in subjection, we don't see it that way. Though we're supposed to rule over it, what do we see? We see, well, pain. Hardship, sin, misery. And most significantly, we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, isn't that what you want? Wouldn't you like it for everything to be under fully, clearly, obviously Jesus Christ? Does that mean God's plan has failed? So if, if we don't see everything as objection to him, what do we see? Verse 9, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. This refers to the humanity of our Lord. We see Jesus. The author will use Jesus over and over again. It's kind of a shortcut for the humanity of Christ. We see Jesus as a human made in his incarnation for a teensy bit, a little while, 30 some odd years, lower than the angels. God gave Jesus for a few decades to be lower than the angels. The almighty, invisible God was made touchable. He turned the lights on and came down to the ground floor. He came down to be with us. And notice what we see about Jesus in verse 9. Notice where the author wants to go with this. He says, we don't just see Jesus vaguely. We see something special about Jesus. He suffered death, and he's therefore crowned with glory and honor. He suffered death, therefore he's crowned. He shows us this critical Christian pattern, suffering glory. Suffering and death, glory and honor. He says, that's what you need to know right now as you look out at the world that's not in subjection to Christ. You need to see suffering that Christ went through. And glory, in fact, he laid it out here, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Are you ashamed to talk about the death of Christ? Sometimes folks... I find this in maybe more mainline backgrounds, mainline churches. Folks get a little squeamish about the cross. Folks get a little squeamish about speaking about the cross. Are you squeamish about the death of the Savior? I'm not saying are you sad about it. You can be sad about it, yes. But are you ashamed of having a faith that centers on the death of Jesus Christ? The author of Hebrews says, His death is not something to be ashamed of. Instead, it's the source of present glory. Here's the very clear point. Jesus Christ, as a human, is at God's right hand right now. He has always been there, of course, as a son, as a second person. He has always been there. But in his humanity, right now, at the Father's right hand, a real human being fits. Jesus himself, with veins, with a digestive system, a human mind and fingernails and toenails, ruling over all things in heaven and earth. Not a disembodied ghosty, a real flesh and blood guy. Jesus, the man, is at God's right hand. We sing occasionally, and this is really, well, well, I, I, I choose it for us, and you may not like the the hymn, I don't really, that's okay. Sorry about that. I Pastor's prerogative. We sing occasionally, uh, number 291, See the Conqueror Mounts in Triumph. For this very reason, I'll read the last couple of, the, the last verse. You have raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with you in glory stand. Jesus reigns adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in your ascension, we by faith behold our own. That's Hebrews 2, 5 to 9. What's being said there? 
You have raised our human nature in the clouds. There we sit. Notice the hymn writer and the Bible, the point here. As you see Jesus Christ in his humanity, raised, ascended in heaven, you see yourself. As you look to him, you see your own. You see where you are. Why is the author saying, all you got is Jesus on the throne, having suffered and being raised? Because you're looking out right now at your life, and there's a whole lot of suffering. There's a whole lot of pain. There's a whole lot of stunted growth. And yet Jesus, the man, is at God's right hand. He is not just there for himself. He is there for you. He is your pledge. He is your first installment, your down payment, that where he is, we will be also. As Paul can say, if we have suffered with him, we shall reign with him also. I mean, think about this. Think about all the talents and the gifts you have been given. Now, think about how many of them have been stunted on earth. Think about all those forks in the road you came to, and you chose this path, not that path. You didn't go to that school. You didn't take that job. You didn't date that guy or gal. You didn't make that friend. You went this way and not that way. I mean, consider all those times you failed up to live up to your potential. Consider all those days when your body ached and you just got plumb tuckered out and you couldn't finish the job. Consider all those moments when you were overcome with emotion that you couldn't keep going on. All those times you were less than human. All those times you made decisions based on self-preservation. You understand that there is one human in this universe who has never failed to show compassion. You understand that there's one human whose gifts were never stunted. There is one human who never failed to live up to his potential. There's one human who never failed to do the right thing, the hard thing, the true thing, the beautiful thing. He never failed to give with him. He never failed to show courage. You wish you could be like him on your best days. So do I. What's his name? Jesus. Jesus. And that's why just looking at this one guy, this one man, because he has passed through the heavens, just looking at him is enough for you to live and suffer in a world that's not in subjection to you. It's enough for you to take the slings and the arrows of outrageous fortune, as Shakespeare would say. It's enough for you to take all the slights. It's enough for you. Well, it's enough for you to know that as a son of, of, of Adam and a daughter of Eve, you will be with him. It's enough for you to know that there are things in you that nobody has ever seen yet. There are things you could do that nobody's ever seen you do yet, and you've not seen yourself do it. You've never had the opportunity to do them. And yet in the world to come, you will be able to do them. You'll be fully human. You'll be like Christ. This, friends, is perhaps the most important section of Scripture in our day. Because it deals with the great question, what's the goal of a human? What's a human? What's the goal of a human? Our goal, friends, is not simply to have dominion over all things, but our goal is to have dominion over all things under Jesus Christ, under the Lord himself. And the only way you're going to do that is to see 
that the way up in the world is the way down. The way up in heaven is the way down. The way to be mighty in God's eyes and the way to see Jesus is to suffer. You need to know this because so much of the Christian life is a humbling, a humiliation. And yet Christ's life, though it was humbling, though he went low and low and low and lower than you ever can go. God exalted him. He is raised in glory. That's the first of the five things and probably the longest. Don't worry. Second, verse 10. Beginning in verse 10 and going through verse 13, we see Jesus Christ not simply as the exalted king, but as salvation's founder. The author says, look at verse 10. It was fitting that the father for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's fitting That means it was appropriate. That means it fit perfectly. It's like that one puzzle piece. You know, Alexis loves puzzles, and yet I get frustrated and she gets frustrated when you can't find the one piece you need to put to complete the puzzle. It's very frustrating and annoying. And the author says that the one puzzle piece that makes sense of all of your life is Jesus Christ suffering and being made Perfect through it. Because he will bring us the glory. And as he explains that concept, which may be a little tricky for you to grasp, he, he helps all of us out by using a special word. It's this word founder in the ESV. In the NIV, I believe, translated it as uh, author. And it's actually the King James that I think does it best in this case. Captain. The captain of our salvation. It's a word that's only used a couple of times in the New Testament. It's a rare word. But it's a word that means Jesus is able to do something uniquely and specially that others can share in his success. He is a representative. Think about this. Think about the commander of a group of Navy SEALs. they got to break through enemy lines. The commander goes through first. He blazes the trail through enemy lines, and the whole squad's able to make it across. He makes a hole in the line, if you will, a spearhead, a vanguard, and he makes it possible for his fellows to come with him. That is what Christ has done, the author of Hebrews says. He entered enemy-occupied territory, death and sin, pain and guilt. And by his triumph, by his resurrection, he breaks the neck of our enemies, of sin, of shame, of death and guilt. He is our pioneer. He is our captain. He is our champion. What's a champion? It's David and Goliath. Goliath is a Philistine champion. You engage in combat and you represent your people. David was the representative of the Israelites. He's in the middle of the battle. He looks out in the battle. What does the champion do? The champion ran over there. What did David do? He got out of the trenches. Nobody else would do it. He got out of the trenches. He put himself between Goliath and his friends, his brothers, his fellow Israelites, he faced death for them. And the Bible says Jesus Christ is our champion. He's our captain. Why? How? 
Verse 9, we're told he suffered death. Verse 14, we're told he partook of death, but he destroyed the power of death. He destroyed the devil. He blew a hole in the line of death. You know what that makes you as a Christian? Somebody who's not a coward. It makes you as a Christian somebody who can face anything. Because Jesus Christ has blown a hole through the back of death. And he tells you, come on through. Believe in me. Follow me. I'll take you through whatever life throws at you. Do you see, friends, how deeply enslaved you are to the fear of death? We actually mentioned this morning. I don't want to repeat that. But do you realize how deeply enslaved you are to being scared of death? It's what um, verse 15 talks about. Jesus Christ has the ability to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you know you are in chains and the chains are all the chains of death? You are scared of it. You'll do anything you can to hold on to life. Jesus Christ comes into your life with his resurrection and he says, I'm breaking the chains. I'm going to release you from that. Do you see that he is the pioneer, the champion, the captain, the founder of your salvation? Third, very briefly, he's our worship leader. This is verse 12 and verse 13, really. He is our worship leader. It's interesting that in the middle of this glorious passage of the resurrected human Christ, the one who is our captain, there's like a side note. Verse 12. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And and the the author of Hebrews quotes, he quotes the Psalms. I'll tell of your name to my brothers. In the middle of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, behold, I am the children God's given me. Do you understand what's happening here? There's a kind of a sidetrack that's not really a sidetrack that the author says. In the middle of this beautiful statement about Christ is our captain, Christ has defeated death, suddenly he says, by the way, Christ is leading you in worship today. Christ is our worship leader. You know, there are folks who have jobs or they're titled worship leaders these days. But what do we have here? We actually have the real worship leader in God's church. And if you want to know what it means to worship God, let me encourage you to apply these verses every time you come here. See Jesus Christ going to the Father and saying, Dad, Father, Lord, here I am. I and the children God has given me. You've given me. Do you realize that when you sing, this is saying Christ is singing with you. In the middle of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Do you realize that when the church sings, Jesus is leading us in song? It's not just the angels. But it's actually Jesus Christ himself singing with us. What does that mean? That means, first of all, that even if you feel like your voice ain't much of a voice, it is covered by the voice of Jesus Christ singing with you. Do you realize the honor, secondly, of singing with Christ? 
the comfort of singing with Christ. That coming to church is not about you singing better or worse, but about Jesus singing and you joining in. Are you willing to join in for Christ? Are you willing to do that? Wouldn't that make our songs even more vibrant than they are already? Jesus Christ, the worship leader. He is the exalted king. He is salvation's founder. He's the worship leader for verse 14 to verse, verse 16. He is the conqueror of our greatest enemy. Look here in verse 14. I've already mentioned it, but to emphasize it, he destroys death. He destroys the one who has the power of death. How does he do it? Through death. Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. You see this? It's it's a fascinating point. How does Jesus Christ destroy the thing we're afraid of? He actually goes into it. He goes all the way into death to destroy your fear of death. Remember when you were a little boy? Some of y'all still are little boys. Little girl, some of y'all still are little girls. Some of y'all are always little girls at heart, and that's a whole other thing, or a little boy at heart. But, but you, you were scared of a monster, right, maybe? You were scared of a monster under the bed, a monster in the closet, and you called mommy, daddy to come in. What did mommy and daddy do? Maybe they turned the lights on, but what they really had to do eventually is for you to make double dog sure there were no monsters, what did they have to do? They had to open up the closet door and go in there and, and turn the light on and say, look, I see it. No monsters. They had to open up, you know, they had to look under the bed and say, oh, no. What did they have to do? They had to enter the place you're scared of. So it is with Christ. We're scared of death. What does he do? He enters into the place you're scared of. He enters into the thing you fear. We live in a society today where people pay a lot of money to get cured of all the fears they have. You can look it up. All the phobias people have. All the worries people have. The gospel gives us here a special medicine because it says deep down, in one sense, all of your fears are about death. You fear death. And think about it. If you could be delivered from that fear, if you could go to some word that could deliver you from the fear of death, If you could be delivered from the fear of losing control over the one thing you love, your own life, your own body. If you can get free of that big monster fear. How about all the other monsters? They'll become manageable. All the other fears you have, they won't be nearly as scary. Do you see here that Jesus Christ is big enough to take your worst fear? He's big enough to handle it. And he does it. And he doesn't do it for the angels. Verse 16 says, he does it for the offspring of Abraham. That's why finally, fifth thing we learn about Christ, he's not just the exalted king, he's not just the founder of our, the captain of our salvation, he's not just our worship leader, he doesn't just conquer our greatest enemy by entering into it, but finally he is the priest. He is the priest who helps us, verse 17 and verse 18. You know you need a priest? You know, you need, I mean, sometimes we get very um, anti-Roman Catholic, so anti-Roman Catholic, we forget we actually need a priest. The Protestant doctrine is not that we don't need a priest. The Protestant doctrine is there's only one great high priest, Jesus Christ. There's only one priest in this church, Jesus Christ. He offered his blood, he died. He gave his blood and he died. He is all sufficient The author notes that he made propitiation 
for the sins of the people. He didn't just take them outside the camp. Right? But he took on the wrath of the Father for us in our place. He was not simply the victim, but he was the priest who offered himself. And finally, verse 18 tells us why you need that. Why do you need a priest? Why do you need a priest? He, well, he was made like you. He was faithful. He served God. All the things the priest should do, but most significantly, most significantly, he continues his work of preservation. He has finished his once for all propitiation work. He continues his work of preserving you. And particularly the author says, in his temptation and in your temptation. He conquered when he was tempted. Do you know how often you're going to be tempted this week? Are you being tempted today? The storms? The storms of the life? The temptations to give up? The temptations to give in? The author says, lift your eyes and see that Jesus Christ went deeper down in his temptations and he emerged secure. Do you know that Christ is tempted far more than you ever will be in your life? Do you know why that is? When Satan comes to him, he was tempted far worse than you ever will be. Because you give in. Jesus Christ never gave in, so Satan had to dig deep to get him. And Satan never could. He had to dig so deep because Christ kept holding fast. He kept holding fast as the faithful high priest. That's why his suffering and temptation is light years more advanced, light years harder than anything you experience, than anything I experience. But he endured. That means he is able to help you in your tiny trials in your little temptations, comparatively speaking. So what should you do with all this, all these beautiful qualities of Jesus Christ? Don't you see how, how, how lovely he is? Don't you see how beautiful he is, how good he is, how true he is, how faithful he is, all that he does for you? So what do you just got to do? What's the, what's the command here? You'll notice there's, there's really just one thing the author tells us to do. We see him. Look to him. See Jesus. See Jesus. Are you looking at him? I mean, maybe you've been looking somewhere else today, but, but let me encourage you to look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, in the light of his grace. There's a Roman emperor, Trajan, famous Roman emperor. It was said he was not just an emperor, but a captain. Not just a captain, but he was a brother. He was not just a king who said, soldiers, go fight for me. But he was the captain who said, soldiers, come with me. He wasn't just a captain who said, soldiers, come with me. But on the battlefield, when his men got wounded, he tore his purple robes. He tore the emperor's robes and he dressed the wounds. He, he tied them up. He helped care for his men. Not just a king, not just a captain, but great mighty Trajan was a real brother. That's nothing like Jesus, you understand. Because Jesus Christ did not tear his clothes. He tore his body. He tore his soul to heal your wounds, to heal your death. He is vastly superior to any human leader or emperor. 
He is vastly superior to anything else you're going to look to in this life. So what did you do? Look to him in spite of all your hardship. Look to him in all of your struggles. And you just say, I will follow you, my brother. He is the real brother, you know. My captain. He's the real captain, you know. My king. He's the real king, you know. When you say that, as you say that, realize the result is not death, what you're so scared of. But the result really is eternal life with him. Let's pray. Father, we come delighting in our Savior. We pray you would give us more glimpses of grace in the eyes of our brother, in the eyes of our captain, in the eyes of our king. We ask that you would do so tonight, this week, as we go about our lives busy, though they may be filled with fear and worry, though they may be. Help us see that you are the founder, not we ourselves, of our own salvation. And to come to you, confidently looking at the glory and grace in the eyes of Christ. I pray in his name these things. Amen.